mornings. I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, more conversation on Ohio's legislative redistricting. We'll speak with State Senator Rob McCauley. Also this morning, the Findlay Hancock County Public Library's Human Library Project is taking shape with the first books now available to check out. We'll get details. In our ongoing Keeping the Faith series, What's Next for Christians in Afghanistan? The international ministry organization Open Doors is helping protect them in the wake of the Taliban takeover. And to your health this morning, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Despite great advancements in care and treatment, far too many people are still needlessly dying of this disease, especially among communities of color. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Your question of the day today, uh, because we had the uh, story in the news yesterday, really exciting, Main Street Deli is going to be adding a retro arcade bar, uh, expanding their current location to add a, a retro arcade bar, which is really cool. And these are becoming incredibly popular uh, places all across the country. Um, and so the question of the day, you can uh, log on on our Facebook page and uh, weigh in, what is your favorite classic video game? Is it uh, Pac-Man or Frogger or is it Donkey Kong? Um, there are so many great choices. I always loved Joust. That was one of my favorites. I dropped a lot of quarters. Joust and Missile Command were the ones that I was fairly good at. And a video game called Tempest, um, which was never a, a huge, hugely popular game. But I found that to be rather easy. Maybe that's why it wasn't such a popular game because there was not as much of a challenge, but that was perfect. That was my speed. Um, I could never do Pac-Man. I could never do, uh, there's a, I drop a lot of quarters uh, in there, but I was, I was better at uh, missile command and uh, Frogger too. I guess I did. Uh, anyway, what was your uh, favorite classic arcade game? Uh, and you can log on our Facebook page and uh, check that out. And uh, weigh in with your uh, favorites. It'll be interesting to see what the uh, results are. Good mornings to you. It is Wednesday, September 22nd, the 265th day of 2021. And that means there are 100 days remaining. Exactly 100 days left in the year. Today, of course, the first day of fall. And you know how it, it seems like sometimes Mother Nature's schedule is a little off, off kilter with the calendar. Not this year. I mean, first day of fall, and boom, it's almost sweater weather this morning. It is very cool. What are we at? 51 degrees, something like that? Uh, uh, right now, something, I don't know. Let me call it up here and get it on the uh, computer. 50, 59 degrees. So uh, not quite as uh, cool as I thought, but it feels quite a bit cooler with the rain. I get some wind today. It'll definitely feel like the first day of fall. It is chain mail day today. Remember chain mail uh, before the days of the internet where you had junk email, you had just junk mail, chain mail. Remember getting chain mail letters eons ago. Business Women's Day. It is Dear Diary Day today. National Centenarians Day today. Happy National Centenarians Day to uh, all of those. We're into the triple digits. National Ice Cream Cone Day. Not not Ice Cream Day. Ice Cream Cone Day. The cone has to have 
its own day. National White Chocolate Day, National Girls' Night In Day. This would be a good day for a a night in, uh, given the weather forecast. Yeah, World Car Free Day and World Rhino Day today. There you go. Reasons to celebrate. So. This was an interesting report among the first things you need to know this morning. The most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start your day. A new report out yesterday from the U.S. Census Bureau suggests that the drop in births in the U.S. that was seen during the pandemic may be turning around. The birth decline was most noticeable at the end of last year and beginning this year. Births were down 7.7% in December of 2020 from... December of 2019, and down 9.4% in January compared to the year before. But by March, births were only down 0.15% compared to March of 2020 when the pandemic began. This is according to the uh, CDC uh, report. The CDC uh, reported in May that the U.S. birth rate fell 4% last year, the largest single-digit or the largest single-year decrease in nearly 50 years. Uh, good to know that uh, <clears throat> we have we have turned that around. Thank goodness. Uh, elsewhere, the most uh, interesting and buzzworthy. Speaking of kids, it is you have a picky eater. It is normal for toddlers to be fussy eaters, but when that behavior extends uh, into the school age years, then it can be a little problematic. Researchers in Australia reviewed a number of studies about kids under the age of 10, and they found a range of things that can contribute to a child's chances of being a fussy eater. Specifically, they found that pressuring a child to eat offering rewards for eating what's on their plate, and very strict parenting negatively influences fussy eaters. Those are counterproductive ways of getting them to eat. On the other hand, they say a more relaxed parenting style uh, involving the child in the preparation of the food and eating together as a family all reduced the likelihood of kids being fussy eaters. So, if you have a picky eater, hey, if you've got a picky eater, you're probably willing to try anything, right? There you go. Um, pandemic news. You might want to start saving your pennies if you're planning to purchase a new artificial Christmas tree this year. The cost of fake trees is set to jump 66%. Thanks to ongoing global supply issues and a shipping container shortage. Balsam Hill, which is probably the largest artificial tree maker in the world, is selling its four and a half foot tall Grand Canyon cedar tree for $499 this year. That is 200 bucks more than it cost last year. Tree Time, which is another big uh, artificial tree company based in Illinois, says the cost of shipping has jumped by 500%. And uh, they are raising their uh, the prices of their trees by, they hope, no more than 20% um, in response. 
So it's all due to issues with the global supply chain. They say artificial tree inventory is down by 22% overall with stock of other Christmas decorations down by as much as 42%. So it's not just trees going to cost you more to deck the halls this year. So start saving your pennies now. Um, elsewhere in the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start your day. This, I don't know, this might not sit too well with you. See what you think about that. Apple is hoping that one day we will turn to our iPhones to keep tabs on our mental health. Uh, Apple has teamed up with UCLA on mental health research in the past and with pharmaceuticals company Biogen. Uh, they have uh, been studying cognitive decline and now they are planning to incorporate the knowledge that they have gained from this work into the new iPhone. The goal is to alert users that they may be suffering from conditions such as depression, anxiety, or general cognitive decline. The technology relies on an algorithm built off of data clues such as physical activity, which it tracks, sleep habits, which it tracks, and even how you type on the virtual keyboard on your screen apparently gives clues as to the as to your mental acumen and your mental state. All of this information together could offer insights into how consumers are feeling, their energy, their concentration levels. Now, the research is still in the very early stages. It is not clear if Apple will actually be able to create an effective algorithm to do what it wants to do, but I'm sure they will because what seems impossible today uh, oftentimes turns out to be routine tomorrow. We've learned that over the years with technology. But I don't know, is this something that we want our phones to keep track of whether we're depressed or anxious or you know whatever? I, I, I don't know. It's almost a little creepy. There are potential privacy issues related to the data that Apple would need to gather in order to make this work. So a lot of things have uh, yet to flush themselves out on this, but I just... It seems a little creepy to me. I don't know about you, but and here is some good news that the world has long been waiting for. And finally, corporate America is responding. McDonald's is pledging to offer more sustainable Happy Meals by the end of 2025. <laughs> Already, it says the fast food giant has cut down on the use of plastic in its toys, uh, which, of course, comes from fossil fossil fuels, uh, crude oils used to make plastic. They've already cut down the use of plastic in their Happy Meal toys by 30 percent. And if McDonald's can reach the target that they announced yesterday, the company will have cut 90 percent of the less sustainable plastic that it used in its toys back in 2018. More than 100 countries sell Happy Meals, and McDonald's distributes over a billion Happy Meal toys worldwide each year. The company's chief sustainability officer says the more eco-friendly toys will begin rolling out in the U.S. by January of next year. So, thank goodness, 
We have we have saved the world with more eco-friendly, more sustainable happy meals. I know that I I was losing sleep over this. So <laughs> I'm sure you were too and now we can rest easy knowing that that problem will soon be solved. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Rain is expected to continue today and it will be heavy at times. Forecasters say rainfall amounts through tomorrow morning will range between 2 to 4 inches with locally higher amounts in spots. There is a possibility for widespread flooding resulting from small streams and creeks flowing out of their banks and flooding from rivers. Safety officials are reminding everyone to never try to drive through high water. You can get the latest forecast and river levels on our website. We stop by one of the United Way of Hancock County's Fall Days of Caring service events. Donna and some co-workers from First National Bank were helping prepare dinner at the City Mission of Findlay. I was cutting up carrots, and Kate is cutting tomatoes, and Vanessa's messing with the chicken over there, cutting chicken up, and, and now I'm making green bean casserole. Okay. But don't tell my family, I cook. Donna says her workplace enjoys giving back to the community, and they do so as often as they can. During the fall days of caring, about 150 corporate volunteers are tackling dozens of projects for local nonprofits. Get more on our website. An Ohio doctor who falsely claimed that coronavirus vaccines make you magnetic is keeping her medical license. Dr. Sherry Tenpenny drew national attention when she was invited by a lawmaker to speak at the State House. Well, late last week, the State Medical Board renewed her license for another two years. State law allows the board to refuse renewal of any physician for making a false, fraudulent, deceptive, or misleading statement in relation to the practice of medicine. ONN's Yolanda Harris reporting. Get more on our website. Governor DeWine says he's considering new incentives to get more Ohioans vaccinated against COVID. He says the Vaximillion sweepstakes earlier this year was a success, saying it worked exceedingly well the first 14 days. The governor did not say what a new vaccine incentive might look like. Give more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Information that makes a difference. Good mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, as we were talking about earlier in the week, Ohio's legislative redistricting maps have been approved. Not without controversy, but they are out there now. And on Monday, we spoke with Representative John Cross about the uh, redistricting in the Ohio House. This morning, we are joined by State Senator Rob McCauley to talk about uh, his side of the uh, uh, of the chamber. And, and uh, Senator, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. Uh, first of all, we appreciate it. Uh, I have to admit that I, I didn't look as, as closely at the Senate redistricting as I did at the House uh, redistricting map because it didn't appear that there were as many significant changes, certainly not uh, for most of Hancock County, which you will still represent uh, moving forward. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's accurate. There are some subtle changes here and there that uh, as far as the, the addition of all of Fulton County rather than part of Fulton County as mm-hmm. it currently stands in the district, the addition of uh, Mercer County, uh, which we do not currently have in the first Senate district, and then, uh, of course, the addition of part of uh, Wyandotte County, which we do not currently have in the Senate district, and then, of course, the 
the loss of uh, Hardin <clears throat> of Hardin County, um, which uh, is currently in the Senate District and part of Logan County. So there there are some changes, but by and large, um, it, it's still a district that, that demographically. Uh, is, is pretty similar to the first Senate district as it's currently constructed. And this is something that every uh, senator, every representative uh, pretty much goes through at least once. I mean, if you uh, you know spend enough time in the state legislature, you're going to go through this redistricting process. How do you approach this uh, for you personally? You know, again, you're going to be representing individuals uh, that you will now uh, need to kind of get to know uh, a little bit better their concerns, uh, the the uh, issues and, and so on. And uh, talk a little bit about that process and, and how that works from your standpoint. You are correct, Chris. This happens every 10 years and, and with eight year term limits in either chamber and the possibility for people to to go uh, from one chamber to the other, the likelihood is you are going to run into this at some point if you're serving in the legislature for your full eight years. Um, but my plan to represent it is to really just uh, introduce myself to the new areas, um, similar to what I did when I went from the House to the Senate, mm-hmm. and, and really run on my track record of um, conservative principles of, of fighting for Northwest Ohio, of supporting the agricultural community, of supporting the business community, and uh, supporting many of the conservative beliefs that we have, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, um, because I think that what I've found over my time in the legislature is uh, representing those values is important. They want to know that you are going to be able to stand up for their values in Columbus, and I believe I have a track record to demonstrate that I will do that. So that's my plan as far as representing the new areas and, and introducing myself to those new areas. And as you mentioned, uh, the... Uh kind of the makeup of the uh, areas that you have added very similar to the existing uh, first uh, Senate district. As you mentioned, normally this redistricting happens every 10 years uh, because of the the way these maps were drawn. And uh, that has uh, led to some of the controversy over this. And, and I don't want to ask you to speculate as to what may happen in the future uh, in terms of these maps. But as it stands now, uh, these are four-year maps, not uh, the standard 10-year maps. Does that add any... I guess stress, for lack of a better uh, term, in in terms of uh, knowing that it's only four years and we'll go through all of this again. Uh, well, I think for for a lot of people it does. I think we all hope to get a ten year map, um, and I don't. I'm not really sure exactly the reasoning why or why not. We didn't get that. Um, I was not part of the redistricting commission, right? Um, but uh, as far as it's going to affect me. Uh, my term coincides with the four-year map. And so, um, you know, this map will go into effect for the 2022 elections. It'll be first in effect January 1 of 2023, and it will last through 2026. Um, That coincides with my final term of eligibility in the Ohio Senate. Um, But I do know it's something that this is an arduous process. It does bring out uh, an awful lot of different opinions, um, it does bring out uh, people on both sides of the issue, and it's something that you really would prefer to not have to do every four years. Um, but uh, in this case, procedurally, what would happen is, uh, barring some unforeseen change, uh, this will be a four-year map, and in the year 2026, we will be redrawing the map, um, or at least revisiting the map, uh, for what would be in place for the final six years of the decade until the next census.
Now, this was uh, one of the issues that we brought up with uh, with Mr. Cross earlier uh, in the week. In some districts, the way and and again, this is something that always happens uh, when the lines get redrawn. In some districts, uh, you end up with uh, two seated uh, representatives or or legislators uh, that suddenly become part of the same district. That hasn't happened in Senate District 1, right, are the areas that you have picked up? That has not happened in my Senate district. Okay. I know in the Senate district that is directly to the east of uh, of the first Senate district, so we're talking Seneca, Sandusky County, the other part of Wyandotte County. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bill Reinecke is currently the senator there. Uh, and uh, that did happen in that district where two senators, two Republican senators got drawn into the same district, Bill Reinecke and uh, Mark Romanchuk. And um, so it, it's not to say it doesn't happen, but um, I, I will say this. The the map that was proposed on the other side of the aisle would have had me drawn into a district um, up in uh, with uh, Senator Teresa Gavarone from Wood County, mm-hmm. which by the way the Constitution works and by the way the district was drawn, I would not have been able to run for re-election in 22 mm. because I would have been drawn into a district which would have which would have had a term expiring in 2024. So um, it, it is something that is a possibility, and um, thankfully for me, um, it yeah. did not happen to me this time around. Fortunately for you, it did not impact uh, uh, impact uh, District One. Uh, that being said, and you mentioned uh, Teresa Gavarone, uh, parts of uh, Northern Hancock County. Uh, are now in uh, her uh, Senate district, uh, however, which uh, I think is is new. Uh, Hancock County being split where I don't believe it was before. For those who will be impacted by that district change, uh, what can you say uh, about uh, you know the the new representation that those individuals will have? Well, I've gotten to know Teresa over the last several years, both serving in the House with her and serving in the Senate. She is an excellent, excellent legislator. She's somebody who's extremely active on both the policy side, but also she's somebody who who really works hard to make sure that she's getting around her district um, and really makes uh, works hard to make sure that the, the constituents know that she can be accessible. Um, I, I did talk with her briefly after the maps were released about uh, Hancock County and representing Hancock County. She's excited. Um, she is a resident of Bowling Green. And so for her, it will be easy to just jump on I-75 and come south and mm-hmm. visit the great people in Hancock County. So I, I think the people who are represented by her will be pleased. And I, I know uh, deep down that she'll do a great job. Again, uh, talking about the uh, redistricting maps, uh, which were released uh, last week, uh, like we said, not without controversy, and there has been some legal action threatened, although uh, at this point we're not sure what may happen moving forward. But as it stands uh, right now, Hancock County, most of Hancock County's representation will not change uh, in the Ohio Senate uh, anyway. And uh, State Senator Rob McCauley with us this morning sharing his thoughts. Senator, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Joel Manti is with us from the Findlay Hancock County Public Library. The library's Human Library Project is uh, taking shape with the first books. 
now available to check out. And uh, Joel, first of all, thanks for uh, joining us this morning. For those who are unfamiliar, and I know we've talked about the Human Library Project, but for those who are unfamiliar, talk a little bit about what this is and how it works. Sure. So uh, back in 2000 in, um, I think, Denmark, uh, somewhere in Europe, it, the Human Library Project started, and it's spread around the world since then. Um, it's, it's a really great opportunity for people to be able to sit down, talk one-to-one with, with someone that they may have never had the opportunity to sit down and hear their story from before, mm-hmm. um, and really see, see that person as an individual, even though they might be talking about their, their struggles with addiction or, or uh, what it's like being a vegan or being a stepmother or just any of the I'd, variety of things that happen in their yeah. life um, and just what stigmas, stereotypes that they face and, and how, how we are affected by, yeah. by them being in our community. It, it is such an important, these are such important conversations to have, especially uh, right now at this uh, ultra-polarized time that we live in where it is sometimes difficult to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Uh, this really helps uh, helps one do that to understand where we're all coming from because it seems like we've uh, forgotten how to empathize with uh, other people and their struggles their issues and their realities that's right that's right it's there there's so many people in our community and and i i've been very excited to sit down and meet with our 14 books that we've got for this program uh coming in uh, coming up in october and and i've i've heard all of their stories They've got amazing lives that they've lived and, and experiences that I have no clue <laughs> yeah. uh, that I've not personally experienced at all. And being able to hear from them and what they've gone through has been great for me. And I'm really glad that we're going to be able to do this and bring this to the community so that everyone can come out, sit down with these people and hear from them. And I would imagine in hearing all of these stories, in some cases, uh, you hear from people who have had struggles that uh, you uh, have never personally uh, experienced and, and would otherwise be very uh, be very difficult for you to relate to or, or uh, fully understand. But then uh, the flip side of that, I'm sure that there are also stories where, you know how the old saying goes, the grass is always greener on the other side. You see people's lives that you think are absolutely perfect and, you know, what struggles could they have or what issues could they have? And, and there's always a story. Every life has a story. That is absolutely right. There, there's, there's so many people coming out for this that, that it's, it's you. You think you know what what's going on mm-hmm. with somebody. Like if they're if they're experiencing um, being someone that has experienced homelessness, you've you've got your yeah. expectations of what that is. Mm-hmm. But but being able to sit down with someone that's that's helped a number of people in our community that ha- have experienced homelessness, um, just hearing all of the variety of stories that yeah. are out there, and and it, it it's life changing hearing that that the, these preconceived conceptions that we have about these different individuals and what what they've gone through. We think we know what they've what they their story is, but everyone's story is different. Yeah, and and it, it's so interesting and helpful to be able to sit down with someone and really put their face to 
to their story mm-hmm. and how it is so unique. It certainly gives you a, a fresh perspective on uh, the people in the community. And uh, now, as we said, the first books, uh, as it were, are available to check out now. I- explain how this works, how the Human Library Project works uh, in terms sure. of logistics standpoint. Sure thing. So on October 16th, uh, which is Saturday, mid-October, from 1 to 4 p.m. at Finley High School, uh, we're going to have our first, hopefully first annual, uh, human library event um, where anyone in the community is welcome to come out and come out to the high school and sign up to sit down with, with one of these different individuals for about 15 minutes and and start to hear about their story. Um, if there's time allowing, if, if there's no one, no one immediately after them, they can continue that time, sit down for a total of 30 minutes if they want to, Okay. Um, and really go into more of their story and ask more questions from them. Um, but if there is somebody that wants to talk to them right yeah. after you, they you would be able to of, go back to the lobby and talk to someone else for the 15 minutes while... While you wait to get back yeah. to the person to continue their story, it, it sounds uh, almost like I, I guess in in it's not exactly similar, but it, to uh, put it in maybe terms people can uh, can relate to, kind of like a speed dating thing where you go from a, li- a little bit, to, yeah, yeah, um, uh, but it, not not just going from one table to the next table to the yeah. next. There will be a little bit of a, a mingling around, and you choosing which. Mm-hmm which story you want to hear from. Really uh, interesting. So uh, do folks need to sign up uh, for, for this event uh, in advance or just show up uh, at the high school on the 15th? It'll just be showing up on the 16th. Um, anyone can, can come in. No registration required for, for participants to, to be readers of the books. Um, it's just show up on, uh, it would be able to come in at 1245 so we can start right at one o'clock um, and we'll, Get people seated at one and keep going through four. It sounds like a fascinating event and just a tremendous project. We hope that a lot of folks will take the time, make the time, a couple hours out of a out of a Saturday afternoon to really get to know some of the folks in the community that, again, they may not have necessarily crossed paths with before to get this greater understanding that at the end of the day. We are all uh, connected and and we all share a lot of the same, I know this sounds almost cliche, let us share the same hopes, dreams, goals, and and wishes for our lives and for our fellow man. So Definitely, definitely. Um, So again, uh, give us all of the uh, details on this. Sure thing. So it is Saturday, October 16th at the Finley High School uh, in the main lobby cafeteria area so okay people know where to park there for that um from 1 p.m to 4 p.m okay october 16th and uh there is more information on the human library project uh at the library's website which we have linked up at goodmornings.net a lot of other things going on as we head into the month of october too so you can learn more about uh, other programs and events uh with the library uh at the website as well but uh, the human library project uh definitely a highlight of the coming month joel manti thanks very much for uh, taking the time we appreciate it thank you so much chris Now, 
It is time for our ongoing Keeping the Faith series. Last month, 20 years of hard work by the U.S. military and our allies in Afghanistan was undone over the course of about a week and a half. It was extremely hard to watch the country fall again to the Taliban, and our disjointed exit from that nation leaves a lot of unanswered questions. What happens to the Americans that weren't able to get out? What about our Afghan allies, the interpreters, and their families? And what is next for Afghanistan's minority Christian population? On that question, the international ministry organization Open Doors is helping protect them in the wake of the Taliban takeover. We get more from correspondent John Clemens this morning, Keeping the Faith. Many people of faith have wondered what can be done for those left behind, surviving only at the mercy of Islamic terrorists in Afghanistan. David Curry of Open Doors USA is calling for support for the gospel. Help support the gospel to first help it survive in this region and then thrive. The main context now has been how can we get people out? But the church is still there and we need to find ways to have projects that support refugees and and try to do it in the name of Jesus in a way that's loving and supportive and shows uh, that we are salt and light in a very dark world and also ponder through how we can be part of helping the the Afghan uh, believers wherever they may be. Radical terrorists have reconquered Afghanistan again. We know the rule of the Taliban during their time in control of Afghanistan is brutal. It's based on a very extreme interpretation of Islam. So now when we're forced in this present day to look at the collapse of the civilization, Taliban taking over so quickly, it just brings up several concerns for religious freedom. Christians in particular are in grave danger there. But the entire population obviously has a number of issues, all the infrastructure issues. So there's a number of things going on right now that give me grave concerns. For years, Christians in Afghanistan were forced to worship underground. Now that persecution will only be stronger at the hands of the terrorists. Christians in Afghanistan have been forced to worship Jesus in secret for years, so that's not new. However, you can just look at the environment, know now with Taliban having total control over all of the systems, it's made it impossible, really, uh, in the practical sense, for there to be a free movement of Christians in the country. But there are certainly uh, believers there. There are several thousand. We believe that that church is going to survive. We hope that it will. That's one of the things we need to pray for. David Curry of Open Doors USA has been in prayer for the females of Afghanistan, both young and old. The Taliban 20 years ago was not allowing women to go to school. They did not want them to be educated. That's their theological interpretation of Islam. So we know what their belief system is right now. I think you have a opportunity here for, in a negative sense, double persecution, because you have women who are persecuted within that society, and then you have women who are Christians who are even in more danger. Murder happens to Christians within these situations very often. Even for those Afghans who are not left behind, who fled to another country, what can be said about their future? The refugees, while more fortunate than some of the people left in the country, still have a very difficult and uncertain future. It's not entirely clear which countries will allow them in. Some of the borders have been closed. You have students that are now out of school. 
The parents don't know if they're ever going to get out of the refugee camp. If they have to live in a refugee camp, those are not always the best of conditions. So there's a number of issues there around refugees, not to mention the issues within the country as to how to handle this wave of refugees from the crisis. It is difficult to understand how someone can kill another person for God. They certainly believe in Sharia law in the most extreme version of it, which gives them spiritual rights, they believe, to attack infidels, to murder people who are followers of Jesus and other religious minorities. Christians and minority of faiths are not welcome in the Afghanistan that is ruled by the Taliban, and that makes it a breeding ground for all kinds of terrorist activity and other horrors. David Curry of Open Doors USA has a message that he would like to share. My message to believers here in the West is that there are believers in Afghanistan. It's not the church that you and I know. There are no physical buildings. This is an underground church that is under great pressure. Pray for them. We have an app, opendoorsusa.org, which has regular prayer updates on this country and other regions as well. This is the best way you can pray for these people. Opendoorsusa.org, and there's an app, Pray for the Persecuted, that gives you updates on what's happening in Afghanistan and elsewhere through the lens of prayer, how you can pray for, effectively, Afghan believers. This is John Clemens reporting. Just one of many heartbreaking developments we've seen over the past month or so. Keeping the faith this morning, link for more information up at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. This is a rather unusual theft. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, the local police department says Kevion Hooks has been arrested for armed robbery. Apparently, uh, he approached the victim with a large metal spike, armed with a large metal spike, and stole the victim's prosthetic leg. <laughs> he stole his artificial leg. Police uh, said when uh, Mr. Hooks was apprehended... The cops found him with the victim's leg strapped to his head. <laughs> uh, there's got to be a story. There's got to be uh, more to that, but that's what it says. Police say they removed the leg from Mr. Hook's head and returned it to the victim. <laughs> well, at least he got his leg back. I guess there is that. Oops. Weird. Uh, speaking of weird, this is all kinds of weird on so many different levels. Uh, this in Oklahoma as well, uh, 54-year-old Bob Lee Allen pleaded no contest this week <clears throat> to performing an illegal surgery. Uh, apparently, he performed a castration at a cabin, at his cabin in Oklahoma. <laughs> castration! Prosecutors say Mr. Allen... Um, performed the surgery on a volunteer um, who had to be transported to the hospital when he wouldn't stop bleeding. Uh, <clears throat> a judge uh, sentenced Mr. Allen to more than 12 years behind bars. What I want to know in this whole story is, how do you get a volunteer for that? I mean, if somebody approaches me and offers me a free, uh, a free surgery, especially that particular surgery... 
I'm not going to volunteer. I'm sorry. I, I don't think <laughs> that I would volunteer. <clears throat> that is, uh, that is crazy. <laughs> How do you find a volunteer for that? Moving on. Uh, this from the international file. Two men from New Zealand have been accused of violating COVID-19 lockdown rules over some Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, Auckland police were on patrol when they saw a suspicious-looking vehicle and decided to make a traffic stop. The vehicle contained thousands of dollars in cash, along with three buckets of chicken, along with several containers of coleslaw and some fries. (laughs) The pair allegedly tried to sneak the food in from Hamilton to Auckland. Hamilton's about 75 miles uh, away from uh, the city. Auckland's lockdown rules have closed restaurants and required everyone to stay home. The men face up to six months in prison and fines on charges of breaching the COVID-19 Public Health Response Act. All for some Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) If you're going to violate COVID-19 lockdown protocols... Would you do it for KFC? I mean, <laughs> is that really is that really worth it? And some things may be, but Kentucky KFC is good. It's finger licking good, but I'm not sure if it's go to prison good. You know what I mean? No. In any event, uh, sometimes there is such a thing as too good to be true. Uh. Take this story, for example, out of Mississippi. Two men who thought they scored the deal of a lifetime have found themselves at the center of a murder investigation. Apparently, they came across a vehicle on the side of the road with a sign that said free car. (laughs) And so they took the car. It was free. Had the keys in the ignition and it had a sign said free car. There's always a catch, though. When there's something, when you get something for free, there's always a catch. And in this case, the free car had a dead body in the trunk. (laughs) Couldn't see that coming. The pair uh, were shocked to discover that uh, they, how did they not notice the smell? I don't know. But uh, anyway, the article says the the body was later identified as a 34-year-old man, but police have no idea uh, who the victim is, how he got there, what the circumstances were. They're still investigating. Police say the car was parked around 9.30 Saturday morning on the side of the road, was picked up the following day by the unsuspecting men. Uh, No arrests have been made, obviously. They just have no idea. The guys who thought that they scored a free car, well, (laughs) a little out of luck. (laughs) okay if you see a sign on a car over the side of the road that says free car (laughs) probably too good to be true and finally in the broken news this morning relieved that their crop survived the worst of hurricane larry owners of brown's family farms in newfoundland were shocked when they went to harvest the last of their wild blueberries and found that someone had beaten them to it. This is according to a report in the CBC. Uh, More than three acres of their blueberry farm, located outside of St. John's, Newfoundland, had already been harvested. Uh, The thieves also allegedly knocked down a sign and covered the field in tire tracks and footprints. 
There's not a berry left on the bush, uh, says uh, one of the owners of Brown's Family Farms. We were pretty upset and pretty much just kept walking around in disbelief. It says the blueberry heist must have taken a significant amount of time. Uh, It's not a gallon of berries. It's a significant amount of berries. So whoever harvested them would have had to have had the equipment and the capacity to manage the theft. They believe the culprits are likely selling the berries to a bulk buyer or if they have the right equipment, processing the berries themselves. Uh... The uh, theft, the Browns family farms says the uh, theft is a blow, big blow to their business, especially since they can no longer fulfill some of their uh, bigger orders. Who would steal? Who would steal a field of blueberries? I mean, you talk about unusual thefts. That's right up there—a field of blueberries being stolen in Canada. There you go. Uh, that is uh, today's broken news <laughs> report. Uh, This update on the odd and unusual side of the news, it is certainly that today, no question. Brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the WFIN Virtual Car Show. Get them out, shine them up, and upload a pic of your classic, and we'll post it to WFIN.com for everybody to see. In addition, we'll have an online car show calendar so that you know when and where all the area shows are. It's chrome and horsepower on display online. The WFIN Virtual Car Show and Calendar. Thanks to Details Auto Spa, Loritz Chevrolet Cadillac, and 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Time for your daily download this morning. The numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. With the uh, Thanksgiving uh, holiday now right around the corner, today being the uh, first day of fall. So before you know it, Thanksgiving will be here. And given that last year was so different Uh, Thanks to social distancing, the pandemic, and all of that. It appears that Americans are more more hopeful for a normal Turkey Day this year. In fact, a new survey of more than 2,000 Americans sponsored by Jenny O, which is a popular turkey, Jenny O turkeys around Thanksgiving. Anyway, they uh, put together this survey, put this out there. They found that two-thirds of Americans are hopeful for a more typical thanksgiving this year in fact 57 percent plan to start planning the festivities earlier than usual 55 percent in the survey say they intend to visit multiple small gatherings this year the average is keeping those visits to two for safety reasons still have to worry about the pandemic i guess 42 percent say they will attend a friends giving celebration Especially 56% of those in Generation Z and 59% of their younger millennial counterparts. For those who are going to cook the traditional meal this year, 87% say they are confident they can churn out a good holiday dish thanks to the skills that they have picked up in the kitchen during quarantine. (laughs) That was kind of interesting. 87% say Thanksgiving will be the food will be better this year because of the skills that they picked up during the quarantine in the kitchen because everybody was cooking. Uh, That said, uh, handling the turkey itself remains intimidating. 37% say they fear cooking the Thanksgiving bird. 49% are afraid they will overcook it. And 37% say they have no idea how long they should cook their turkey. Uh, 62% said the pandemic changed their plans from the usual 
Turkey and football family gatherings last year. More than half say they are going to be relying on video calls for a virtual get-together this year as well, thanks to the changing health guidelines like vaccine mandates and fear over the Delta variant. So it's still out there, but uh, it seems that most of us, two-thirds, are hopeful for a more typical Thanksgiving this year. I would count myself among them. To your health this morning, September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And despite the fact that some great strides have been made in recent years in terms of prostate cancer care, there are still some alarming disparities that persist uh, along uh, racial and ethnic lines. And joining us this morning from the American Urological Association is Dr. Brian McNeil. Uh, you have actually uh, been a part of the American Urological Association has uh, done some research on this. Talk a little bit about these disparities uh, among men with prostate cancer uh, in terms of race, ethnicity, and so on. Right. Great. Well, thank you for the introduction, Chris. It's great to be here with you. And hello to Toledo. Uh, good to be here with you all. I have some roots in Ohio, so it's always good to touch base with folks there. Awesome. Uh, before going into details, let's talk a little bit about prostate cancer statistics. Um, about 250,000 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, and 34,000 men will die as a result of complications from prostate cancer. Your risk of developing prostate cancer, the average guy, is about 1 in 8. But if you're African-American, that risk goes up to one in six. And this also impacts the Hispanic community. One in five men Hispan- one in five Hispanic men diagnosed with cancer today are diagnosed with prostate cancer. Hmm. So this is a pr- pr- issue for all groups, but it impacts some groups more than others. Now, is the, uh, just, to, just to interject real quickly, is there a genetic uh, component to this, or is this all environmental and you know a, a, a racial and, and ethnic divide that we need to address socially? So, awesome question. And it has a somewhat complicated answer in this. There are certainly genetic differences amongst men from various uh, ethnic groups, Mm -hmm. which impact one's risk of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. And and these changes may also impact how you respond to treatment. However, there are also issues regarding education and outreach and access to care, which play a role in this as well. Yeah. So you talk about the uh, diagnosis aspect of it. What about uh, the utilization of these new therapies? We mentioned uh, in recent years, great strides in prostate cancer care. What about the racial disparity and ethnic disparity with respect to the utilization of these new therapies? Unfortunately, we have noted uh, disparities in the adoption of new treatments for prostate cancer amongst various groups, various ethnic groups. I'll use immunotherapy, for example. Some colleagues of mine recently reported their findings after looking at the adoption of immunotherapy a little over 10 years ago. What they found was that there was increased adoption of immunotherapy for white men with advanced prostate cancer compared to black men. And... I guess we have to ask this question because it is the underlying question in in every 
health issue that we talk about over the course of the past year to 18 months. How has COVID-19 impacted all of this? COVID-19 has had a tremendous impact on the care of men with prostate cancer, especially those in urban areas. If you think about it, with COVID-19, we've had to divert a lot of our healthcare resources towards managing the pandemic. And with that, you have less men getting screened. Also keep in mind that in some hospitals that serve urban areas, especially those that care for black and brown folks, those hospitals had to restrict elective surgery. So there were men with prostate cancer who were not able to get surgery at the height of the pandemic compared to their counterparts who lived in other areas. So you put it all together, uh, and we're talking about the disparities that exist in diagnosis, in treatment, uh, the way that uh, the coronavirus pandemic has uh, impacted uh, the underlying issue and exacerbated it. So where does that all leave us, and what is the message for those particularly in the black and brown community? The message is this. Access to care has been limited because of the coronavirus pandemic. However, things are shifting. Please get screened. If you're a man between the ages of 55 and 69, have a conversation with your healthcare provider about screening for prostate cancer. If you're a man at increased risk of prostate cancer, for example, if you're African-American, if you have a family history of prostate cancer, or if you have a history of breast cancer in your family, have that conversation earlier on. Again, this is good advice, important advice for all men, but particularly men of color, uh, September being uh, Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And uh, again, Dr. Brian K. McNeil, spokesperson for the American Urological Association. Where do we get uh, more information? Please go to the Urology Care Foundation website, urologyhealth.org. Because the bottom line is that those mortality numbers that you were mentioning earlier, uh, very few, if any of them, have to happen. This is one of the most uh, treatable and manageable conditions uh, if it is caught in time. So that's why the emphasis on screening. Dr. McNeil, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Chris. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the program at our webpage. Check it out, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow, it's one of the most anticipated events of the entire year. We'll get an early preview of the annual Findlay Halloween Parade, plus Superintendent Troy Raw discusses calls to modify the Findlay City Schools COVID policy that were discussed at this week's school board meeting. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.